Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For the episode this month, we spoke with Ken Asmus, the founder of Oikos Nursery. From 1982 till earlier this year, Oikos was one of the most important sources of rare fruit trees and other non-commercial perennial food plants. Ken recently retired from the nursery business in order to better continue his research into food-bearing plants for an era of climate change and to contribute to large-scale public orchards and other plantings. We asked Ken to go in depth on the origins of Oikos and his plant development approach, which stresses enriching plant populations rather than breeding specific named cultivars. He explains the importance of the tree crop's vision to his work, the role of indigenous knowledge in understanding how to use acorns, and the contributions of grassroots plant breeders like Miguel Marquez in starting him on his journey towards developing easily edible oaks. Most importantly, Ken discusses how others can take up his work contributing to a decentralized process of perennial crop development. My name is Ken Asmus, and I have a lifelong interest in plants, especially edible food plants or anything that would be considered an edible food plant. And that's kind of how I started my nursery and the rest of my life just kind of followed from there. It, it turned out that my family, especially my father was a big influence and he had purchased some land in my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan. And that land was basically a wetland and, but there was a little knoll on it that had Christmas trees planted. And so I began helping my father with his Christmas tree farm and my brother and my sister and my mom. And we kind of, it grew from there. And it was always interest to me what was in between the Christmas trees. And there were all these interesting plants. And even as a young child, I always was interested in like, well, that tastes kind of good. You know, what is this wild strawberry? Why does this taste so good? Then from there, as the, as I, you know, went through school and so forth, I always had that continued with that interest and that interest only grew more. And so when I went to school, I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I loved biology and ecology. And I focused in college on that. And I met a couple of teachers that were 
instrumental in my thinking and elsewhere outside of college as well. And that kind of helped me uh, formulate more and more my interest in uh, what would be considered like minor fruits or or maybe even considered wild or edible fruits and nuts. And I was always searching those out. I was very curious about those. I also got involved just at the tail end of that, involved with the commercial uh, nursery industry, as well as the fruit industry. And I began to see what that was like and understand that. And from there, I started developing an idea that maybe I could grow some of these things that I was finding or write about and make that available to other people in some way. <laughs> and I really didn't really think too much about it. So that was, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> there was a period of time where it was kind of right after school, I had started a small landscaping company and I couldn't really find some of the plants that I wanted for doing landscapes. And I also kept remembering the farm when I had moved from Saginaw to Kalamazoo, Michigan. I really loved having a farm to experiment on. That was kind of like my canvas. And I happened to find 13 acres that was essentially a field. It was a hay field when I got it. And so I was like, this is perfect. I could really grow things here. In order to make that work, I found it was cheap enough and it was, you know, I could make payments on it on a monthly basis and just get through. And I was starting a family and I had this landscape company that was flopping. And so I kind of backed off on the landscaping company and just focused on the nursery part of it and collected acorns. I collected a lot of acorns from the city parks. And so I would drive around or anywhere I could find acorns. And I started collecting acorns like crazy and growing the trees there. And that kind of, you know, kind of satisfied my need for two things. One was collecting and just trying different things that I could find. And the second thing was creating a nursery from that. Yes. But there was a reference book in the library at, at Western Michigan University called Seeds of Woody Plants in the United States. And it's an agricultural handbook. And uh, it was within that book, I noticed that there was many different, what would be considered races or geographical races of trees that existed in pines. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. These trees had developed over eons, certain characteristics that would express themselves in these populations that were unique. And my dad had them on his tree farm. So there was a type of blue spruce. I think it was called kebab or something. And you would grow that from seed and it would have blue foliage. And there were other Douglas fir types that happened to uh, leaf out later to avoid frost or something like this. There are many types of uh, balsam fir trees, for instance, that were considered geographical races or subspecies. And so when I had read about that, I was like, I wonder if you could do that with fruit trees. You know, maybe you couldn't do it with apples, but then again, maybe you could. And how long would that take? Because I, <laughs> because I don't have geological time at my, you know, the massive 
thousands of years to do this. I wonder if you could create like little land races or geographical variants that would essentially come true to seed or this variation would be stabilized enough in a population that you could do it several times over. And that's kind of how that became that. And right after college too, I started attending different fruit programs through the North American Fruit Explorers. We went to Cornell or we went to Purdue or Michigan State. And I began to meet plant breeders. And that was, to me, it was kind of both enlightening and discouraging because I realized that the way that they were breeding plants, it was just outside of the, the universe of, of what a normal person could do. And the other part of it was the fruit industry was so particular that all these different characteristics had to be met before you could actually have a cultivar. And so it was kind of at the end of one of these that I met a pecan breeder from the USDA. And he suggested that I was heading in the right direction with all of this over the last you know, two decades that I had been doing this. And he said, you can make these selections based on other characteristics. You don't have to follow what someone calls a normal cultivar. And I said, well, I was really just trying to create populations that could then be moved. And then you eliminate the plant breeder. So in that respect, I was trying to get rid of the secondary steps so you would have so many cultivars to choose from based on your local conditions that it would be overwhelming. Because the way that it is now, there's just only a select few people. It was very hoity-toity, kind of like almost like a society of plant breeders, and they held the key and no one else could could access that. And my goal was just to create these populations that there would just be lots of choices to choose from, and it wouldn't be locked inside of a land-grant college. So the idea of making a cultivar really is that it's considered you know, the pinnacle or the best out of a population. So you have this cultivar and you go, okay, you know, the first question that comes to my mind is why is that variety named? Why is that any better? Now with apples, that might be just a flavor thing and only flavor that is creating that. So that might be one thing. With another type of plant, it might be related to maybe the sugar content in that plant that provides, it's very unique. It might be very, very high. It might exceed all the others in that population. But then there's all these other characteristics. It might be the type when it, when it ripens, it's uniform ripening. So each cultivar may have several, maybe seven or eight characteristics that says, oh, this is really perfect for commercial farming. For instance, with pecans, it might be scab resistance because that's a big one. If it doesn't have scab resistance, then it can't be a cultivar because that's just too hard to manage in in an environment. The other part of it might be, okay, how does the nut release from the shell? Does it come out in holes and halves? What is the percentage of the nut related to its shell? So you have these all these different characteristics. And for instance, if you have black walnut, you know, the very best black walnuts might only have 30% um, nut to shell ratio. 
whereas an English walnut, cultivated English walnut, might have up to 60. So over time, people have made these cultivar selections based on what is commercially significant for that industry. Now, with a population, I'm just saying, forget all of that. <laughs> Let's focus on other things that are more important. For instance, how much work does it take to raise that crop? And why is it that spraying is part of that? Can we eliminate spraying? The other thing is, can we eliminate the graft? Can we grow it from seed? And what would that look like? Is there too much variation from that? Or is it stable enough that it create a population that could be done commercially? Or the other part of it is, does it have to be commercial? Can it be grown in a non-commercial way? In other words, can we grow it in a non-traditional orchard, like a permaculture planting or some other situation? So the idea of having a population, now all of a sudden you have a possibility for creating more cultivars, not only that, but also you could create this situation where it's catching up, it's changing over time with climate. So now you have this secondary benefit from this population that you didn't have before. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> so basically with a population, you have both diversity and then this term that you use, biological enrichment, which just seems so wonderful in terms of a diffuse approach to plant breeding. Right. So enrichment allows, when you're thinking of that, you're thinking of integration biology. It has other pollinators will visit, including whether it's a native pollinator or something else. You know, all these things become part of the environment as well. And it's not so much at odds with it. Certainly, when I'm seeing it, some populations may be farther ahead than others, and others might need additional refinement, but I still think population is the way to go. And even if it's not used in a bigger sense, it could still be part of every farm to have their own populations of plants. If not every farm, every county should have these populations of wild apples, of persimmons or pawpaws or chestnuts or whatever. Essentially, you're creating repositories everywhere, not just in Oregon or at Cornell or wherever. You mentioned permaculture, and I know that what is evoked by Tree Crops, the book, as a permanent agriculture is not totally modern permaculture, but I was still wondering if you could sort of talk about how that appeared as a horizon for you and what J. Russell Smith's vision meant to you. And I'll just say briefly that in going back over the book, that both it seems like a totally gorgeous and practical vision for transforming our landscape. And there's also something that's melancholy about it, because he repeatedly notes in 1930 that already in kind of like ancient U.S. history, you know, in the 19th century, there had been incredible work done to develop persimmon populations that was just bulldozed. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of speak about what the vision that that book offers, you know, what that did for you and, you know, what lessons to take from it. So when you read that, that's kind of the beauty of that book. It, it's an inspirational type of book almost as long as old as it is it's still inspirational people read it and they get inspired to plant trees and so you you see the possibilities yet you don't see it applied really i don't know if we've gotten off track or if people gotten off track but the point would be then who would apply that and who would have the finances 
would a farmer be able to apply that information and still be able to maintain his farm? You know, I think, I think that's maybe part of the problem because the tree planting community would love to see farms, you know, have some of these things, but farmers are cutting it close with everything. And they're so, you know, so involved with other industries that, you know, if you're a corn farmer, it's like, you know, you're not going to tell a corn farmer you need to take out quarter of your land or put it in trees. Um, that might work for a while until the price of corn goes up and then those trees are going to be taken out. And that has happened many times before. So yeah, it is a little bit, you know, if you look at the future of tree crops, you, you can see just even reading this book now that, that nothing really has changed that much. Certainly there's more of a research arm now in agroforestry and everything, but the applied part of it is still quite a bit ways off yet. So I don't know what will happen, but if you look at like, for instance, the oak, you know, he starts on, let's see, it's page 156 and it goes all the way to that's well, like a good 40 pages i think and then the acorn the human food it goes all the way up to 200 so almost 50 pages of that book is devoted to the oak you know and it kind of makes you wonder like what happened why is it that we're not using that crop and there's actually a lot of a lot of reasons for that but either way i think it may not necessarily do with breeding as much as it is making it available and using it in a way that creates health for people and then doing more research on it to have something to back you as you introduce a new crop. So I don't know, this it's just inspirational, isn't it? I mean, you read that book, it's so inspiring. <laughs> it's both inspiring and it's a practical program. And so on that level, I think it, you know, yeah. as you're saying, it's kind of worth taking seriously both what it offers to farmers and its shortcomings. I think I actually found this book because I was studying for chemistry or something. <laughs> because I remember going into the library and I had met a teacher that was talking about organic agriculture or something. And I was always snooping around the very small portion of the agricultural library at Western Michigan University. And I found a lot of books related to plants. And this one, J. Russell Smith had written actually a number of books related to geography and agriculture. So back at the turn of the century, you know, people were growing certain crops like cabbage, for instance, certain areas of the country. A lot of it had to do with their own ethnicity too, because certain cultures brought with them these certain crops. I think the name of that book by J. Russell Smith is called North America, Its People and the Resources, Development and Prospects of the Continent as an Agricultural, Industrial, and Commercial Area. Now, obviously, this is when he was professor of economic geography, it was called, and it was at Columbia University. And he had two or three other books like that, including Human Geography. Some of it is definitely outdated, but is basically what he was trying to show is these other types of agriculture that people were practicing here in the United States at the time. And some of it was profitable, some of it wasn't. But he also wanted to show the wealth. I think he was highlighting the wealth of agricultural products here in the U.S. 
and how that was working, whether it was cotton or whether it was sugar beets. So I think that was his thing. And I think when he was doing these books for Columbia, I'm not sure how that parlayed, but all of a sudden he wrote a bestseller. <laughs> so he's very popular. And I think when I found that book, I was like read that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a, someone that, you know, is in higher education, but he's speaking to everyone here and inspiring people to plant trees. So that's kind of how I found it. it was in the library. And then later I bought the book and I read it several times. And I'd always kind of think about it just in terms of like a permanent agriculture. Tree crops are permanent. They're permanent. How could you have permanent agriculture? And that's kind of been on my mind since. You know, the one part of it is, and I tell people this often, is, you know, it's agra and it's culture. It's people. And so... You know, the average, when you go into the store, you're seeing a reflection of people. I mean, the food that we're eating is reflects all our cultures. And so it's likely over time, then people will find ways to cultivate all these new fruits and stuff, many different fruits and different crops of all sorts. But agriculture is slow to respond very slow so i don't know i can't imagine how long that will take but having a diverse plantings i would i would like to see average people have that could produce something and they make money from it that would be support their land and they'd be able to treat the land well that would be really the goal is that that small people could have additional income produced from a farming type activity but it wouldn't involve a total rearrangement of the environment to create that system, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, integrating growing into people's right. Lives. Integration. Yeah, biological integration. Yes. Sarah Mason, she contacted me because she goes, I think you're the only person I know <laughs> that has, you know, kind of figured out or looked into the edible acorn sort of thing. And I was mentioning to her that other people have done it as kind of a hobby type of thing, but you could probably breed an oak tree for, for acorn production. But the question is, why would you want to do that? Normally with, say, you're growing peaches or you're breeding peaches, you know, you're really looking at one species, you know, or two maybe. And with oaks, there's hundreds of species and many, many hybrids. So it's almost like, okay, where do you start? And maybe you should not consider it like a normal breeding program. But when I first started, it was by accident, really, because the North American Fruit Explorers had a acorn testing group or whatever. They had all these different groups. They were real active before the internet. So everybody was writing each other letters. And um, there was a guy I met who was in charge of that group, and his name was uh, Gene Ulrich. He was uh, he lived in Ennett, Oklahoma, and I think he's a musician, if I'm not mistaken, as well as a forester. And he said, Ken, it's very fascinating what you're interested in. Why don't you head the acorn group? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and I go, well, okay. So he put my name on there. Then we were sending 
acorns back and he sent me a burrow from Oklahoma. And I was like, oh my gosh, look how big this is, you know, compared to the, the acorns here around uh, Southwestern Michigan, because it was twice the size and it was, you know, a little bit bigger than a golf ball. And I was like, this, that's impressive. And I was just more or less uh, curious about it. And as time went on, I met another gentleman who was part of the Northern Nut Growers Association who had actually bred oak trees. In other words, he was doing hand pollination, trying to create a low tannin acorn. So his whole breeding program was revolved around low tannin. I was like, well, could you find that in the wild? And when I started collecting these acorns, I'd always eat some wherever I went or taste test them, I guess is the correct term, more accurate. And when I did that, I would notice there was quite, quite variations in the tannins from tree to tree. But it may have been a yearly thing, too, where one year it, they tasted better than another year. And it was basically just a very subjective test for tannins to taste an acorn. The person doing the breeding that I met from the Northern Nut Growers, his name was Miguel Marquez. And basically he was doing this thing with the pollen, storing the pollen, collecting the pollen, and then blowing it through a little tube that he had designed from a Bic pen. And they would blow the pollen onto the flowers of the oak tree, and then he would bag them. And because he lived in El Paso, Texas, it just happened out of luck that one of the relatives of another very great tree crop person, Fred Ashworth, would visit because he had a daughter or something down there. And um, Fred gave him some pointers on breeding and uh, helped him with it. This gentleman, Miguel Marquez, he had worked on these trees because of the, the volcanic soil there. He had grafted them on these trees in his lot, and he would do everything on a ladder. Miguel Marquez was blind. He was 99% blind. He could only see a pinhole. So he was creating these acorns using this hand pollination technique. And then when I met him, I said, well, can you sell me those acorns? You know, I would like to grow those in my greenhouses and then plant them into my fields. And he was willing to part with some of the acorns. So I bought some acorns from him. I remember having a conversation with my wife and Jesus, guy's doing this all by his hand. And I don't know, how about $10 a pound? And it seemed like at the time it was outlandish to pay $10 a pound for acorn. But what I found was I paid him for those acorns, not that many, but it was enough. And then gave him some extra money for this and that. You know, I didn't really know much about him. And I found out later that he donated all that money to the School of the Blind in, in El Paso. He really was a generous person. He's a World War II veteran. Very funny. Oh my gosh, sharp wit. He also understood the oak tree from the standpoint of like, how am I going to do this to create some, some sort of population where you could make selections for low tannin. So what he did is he went back into the cultures of the Kirkus Ilex with the holly oak and the cork oak and all these other different kinds of oaks, these uh, types of English oak that have low tannin as well. And he began to do this 
you know, pollen thing. And he even tried crossing different genuses within that. He tried to cross chestnut and castanopsis and tried to just see if there was some sort of compatibility. And then when I got the acorns, I planted them at my farm. And um, it really was an amazing array of variation in those. And a couple of those trees are really, really amazing as far as their low, low tannins go. So that was really the goal of that particular breeding program was low tannins. So you have this situation with oaks, and everyone knows this, I think, who collects them. That one year, it's like a banner year, and then no, no acorns. And it may be a year or two years later that there'll be another crop. So you have this big fluctuation with oak flowering and then setting nuts and then dropping. Now, the white oak family, it does that on a yearly basis and red oak is every two years because it takes two years to form the acorns in a red oak whereas in a white oak they flower and set an acorn in one year so there's two different things going on there and then the other aspect of this is during pollination say it's raining a lot or there's a frost you'll soon find that when you're growing these you go wow that frost destroyed the crop just like any other type of flowering tree they are susceptible to these same, you know, things of weather related to weather. So, and the other aspect of oak pollen, as everyone knows, is the fact that it blows for miles. And what this has created is these very heterogeneous populations of, of oak trees. Some, they've done studies on this. They found that some of the pollen is more than a mile away from the parent tree. Uh, so it's really quite amazing how that works. Not the whole population, though. It, it appears that you know, the whole acorn crop, each acorn may be genetically different from many different parents. It's thought that maybe the oak tree has an ability to kind of change its chemistry to accept only pollen from certain trees, even. There's a lot, whole lot going on with that we don't really understand. And one of the things that Miguel Marquez found out was that the previous breeding things that people tried to do with it failed because they weren't following what would be considered a more natural means of, of pollination. They were doing the old uh, brush and, you know, and doing things. So there's a lot of things going on. How much pollen lands on the stigma, how that lands on there, what, in what method, how that hits, hits it and lands and grows and fill and actually makes a fruit, fruitful acorn. So the pollination is one aspect of it. And then the other part of it is, then you get to the point where you want to know, okay, if you're developing an acorn or if you're collecting them from the wild, how much tannin is, is in that acorn? And the issue around tannin is it's a type of compound that is essentially, it is toxic. It, it's not something you want to consume in any quantity because it's related, especially with most humans in particular, it's renal failure. It can happen with cows too, or kidney failure. Also carcinogenic. Um, there are some cultures that have consumed other things like uh, ferns uh, that are that have a lot of tannin in them, like the, similar to what would be experienced with the ostrich fronds, you really need to get rid of those tannins. You can get sick from them, but there's long-term imp implications about eating those over a period of time as well. So removing the tannins or having the tannins taken out makes it a safe crop to eat 
The other part of it is, unrelated to all of this, <laughs> is the USDA has essentially, well, USDA, not essentially, has the acorn listed as a poisonous part of a, of a plant. So they, you know, they don't want people to consume acorns uh, because you could get sick and die from them. So then that really, you know, tannins are so horrible in the mouth that when you bite in, you just immediately spit it out. That's probably a good thing. Prevents illness. So, <laughs> What does it look like to breed low tannin acorns? And can you just sort of talk about the kind of arc of your project with oaks and kind of where it's at now? That finally kind of came to a head. You know, it really took a good 30 years to really understand that. So what I found was there are some some species like swamp white oak, for instance, um, is a good example where the acorn falls free of the cap almost always. It's on the ground. You pick it up. You take it in. You can rinse and wash and boil those, however, whatever method you decide. We probably should discuss that later. Um, but basically, you're, you know, it's easy to remove the tannins in a few washings. You know, that in itself, you know, being able to find the trees or have certain select strains. I have one at my farm that's more precocious. So it begins bearing in four years from seed. And that comes true for successive generations. But the, the issue might be the yields might be low because normally with um, oaks really they will fruit at a young age you can find individuals that fruit in a young age but then really the, the strength of the tree is really built up probably around age 10 or so and then you're going to get more solid crops again you still have this alternate bearing issue but that particular species or that you know strain or whatever it is that I have at my farm, that was a good find, actually. And that was based on one tree that I found in a wetland. And I started, you know, kind of kept growing the different generations from it. So I grew three, I think there's four generations of trees now from that one tree at my farm. And that's something that comes through. It's an easy acorn to clean. It doesn't have any weevils. So that in itself is not a bad thing. And then the other aspect of it, is there anything in a population like what Miguel Marquez was doing that would be a cultivar that you could grow and it would have almost no tannins or no detectable tannins by flavor? And I have one tree like that now from his breeding, but I've only eaten it for the last two years. And this year I haven't sampled the acorns yet, but those have no detectable tannins and are quite delicious just off the tree, which is pretty rare. It's not impossible, but it's pretty rare. Going back to the Native Americans and how they used it, doesn't even matter <laughs> because you're really talking about something that you have to process anyway. But it appears there are certain species in the, in the Southwestern United States, like emery oak. People have sent me samples of emery oak, and those are really quite delicious. That's in the red oak group. But they have a really nice flavor just off the tree. And then there's the ones from Southern California, which, of course, are the Kellogg Eye, Black Oak, or the Canyon Live Oak, and others that people would make a meal. Of course, they rinse the tannins out. And there's more of a history there that was kept going. And so, you know, you have the species types. 
and then you're kind of separating out this cultivar part and my the cultivar part to me was like you know don't be in a rush to name something because it might not be that good to name something that would you know maybe in another environment the acorns are full of tannin so there's a lot of issues that people have thought about related to consuming acorns and then cultivating the tree for a crop and to me i'm always thought about this a lot of times you know what is that going to look like and is that actually a healthy crop to consume and i think it is i think it's a very healthy crop but i think we should take a look the next step of this for me would be then to have it actually analyzed the acorns tested and analyzed for tannin levels that's really a critical part. And then measuring yields. And then from there, go to, to making the graphs available to people and showing people how to propagate them. Because that's the other issue with oaks is making cultivars. It's very tricky. What do crops like oak offer us in a world marked by climate change and insecurity? That's the million dollar. <laughs> that's the million dollar question. Why would you even grow an oak tree? For acorns in particular. And when I started, this was frustrating to me because I was like, this is fantastic. I'm just jacked, you know, about this. And then I would get calls and they go, well, I'm a deer hunter and I want to plant oak trees for dropping acorns and then, you know, shoot the deer, you know. And I was like, okay, I'll sell you my trees for that, you know. (laughs) And they go later on. And I was like, okay. All right. So I had, you know, I was starting to advertise in hunting magazines to sell my, my hybrid oaks. And I, I was like, I got to stop this. It was disappointing to me. I was like, I was using it. It was certainly isn't a bad thing, um, but that wasn't the purpose of all the things I was doing with oak trees. But that could be, you know, I understand that people do hunt and eat meat and all that. So I understand the value of that. So that's really where many people are getting these hybrid oaks now and these these increased, you know, trying to develop increased mass crops is the secondary use for, for hunting. But as far as for what does the oak tree have to offer people and what does the acorn have to do? Well, you're really talking about a particular tree that can grow in the most inhospitable environments, dry, horrible soil. You know, there's just, you know, just the ability to withstand even fire. Some of these bur oak trees with the thick corky bark or Chickas uh, Ilex, the holly oak. There's a whole section on the holly oak in uh, J. Russell Smith's book as well. Like, how far north can we grow holly oak? You know, what is the possibilities of developing a bark, a cork bark industry here in the United States. So there's all these things that people have experimented with uh, related to the oak tree as you know, a secondary crop. Okay, now we got cork, now we have acorns. What else? <laughs> well, part of it might be just having, you know, these massive uh, trees where you would treat it like pecan trees, where you'd have 10 trees or 20 trees per acre. So very low volume but then you're using the understory or the trees you know for other things and oak understory is quite nice too so there's still a possibility of growing other types of berry crops 
for instance, under oak trees. I have in my orchard, one of the amazing things that worked out really well was aronia, another native fruit growing under these oak trees from Oklahoma, these burr oak trees. Now the burr oak trees from Oklahoma are not that productive here in Michigan, but the fact that I got them growing under these, under uh, these large burr oak trees and still fruiting fine, uh, inspired me to plant aronia in other parts of my farm. Um, but there's also black currants that could be grown under these oak trees. So you have to look at it from the standpoint of permanent agriculture, more woody plants, more perennial, possibly other types of perennial crops that be grown in the shade of these oaks. And then having the oaks as part of the system, not just an oak orchard. I think there could be an oak orchard, but I'm not sure that's the most beneficial uh, in terms of, you know, you're really wasting a lot of space that could be grown, other things should be grown. And we should really should think about the profitability of that as well. So my thought is that you're developing an acorn crop to be used for food, but also what else can you do? What else can you add? And that's kind of the, the cool thing about oak trees is that a lot of things grow underneath them. You know, I'm real inspired by that. And there's a certain amount of resilience attached to growing multiple crops. Yeah, you have this deep taprooted tree that can thrive in poor soils. It creates this rich, delicious crop, this delicious acorn, and you can make bread out of it. Bread is so delicious. I used to take it to my talks that I used to give. And I remember one in particular, I had two talks and I had two pans of this acorn bread, which was basically the Betty Crocker recipe, but I took out the corn and put an acorn meal that it leached. And it was so delicious. And the one talk I gave, and I was really happy with it. People, they just loved acorn bread. And then I looked down and I realized that they ate the other pan for the other talk. <laughs> they consumed them all. So it was quite delicious. People loved that. I, I loved doing that. That was so much fun. You know, you mentioned aronia and black currants. Could I just ask you to at least briefly talk about some of the other species you've worked on developing those populations? Plum and persimmon come to mind. But, you know, if you could just sort of talk a little bit about other plants that you've applied your approach to and what that's looked like. Some of it was quite simple, really. For instance, like, say, American persimmon. Because I'm in a very shady, what we consider a very cloudy environment here in southwestern Michigan, I use the most northern form or race or geographical locations of the American persimmon. And I planted those at a very dense spacing around my farm, use them as a hedgerow. They're spaced maybe seven feet apart. And um, I used the earliest ripening plants that I could find. This was, you know, almost 30 years ago that I did that. That worked out very well. Almost every year I get most ripening, very good ripening. And as a secondary crop, that was fantastic. Well, actually, it was more of a windbreak type of thing for me because of the way my farm was on the, kind of on the top of a hill. And these persimmon trees grew very fast and were relatively deer proof. Deer didn't get into the foliage at all. And that worked out very well. There was major crops on those. 
you know, half of them did, don't fruit because it's either male or female. Uh, so there's, you know, the spacing was a little dense, but that was really fantastic. And then with the plums, what I did with that was I had read, again, one of these situations where it was a breeding program. I think it was the USDA breeding program that was done. And then, of course, as the professors get old and <laughs> retire or something, some of those programs are discontinued. And eventually those plantings are bulldozed out. And that's what happened with the plums. So I was like, man, where am I going to get plums from? You know, so I began buying seeds from the seed companies. But I also met people who had these small collections of things. And I would confuse them because I'd say, no, I don't want cyan. I want the seeds. And they go, what? You know what? You don't want cyan? You know, no, send me the pits, you know. And so, but sometimes they would send cyan anyway. And that's how I got the wild goose plum was through a cyan. And then we had to graph that one. But the idea is then teasing out a population from those and just looking at what that looked like. So some of them, like the beach plum, very uniform, very nice. And then you could kind of go from there and then create like little subsections of beach plum to see if those come true or somewhat like that. And then with hybrid plums, there's more variation. And then you go, okay, can I take that variation and move that into another area of the farm and test that out to see what that looks like as far as a population goes? For me, it's like each selection for the plums was like finding ones with very nice large leaves, healthy foliage first and fast growth rate, and then just waiting and seeing what that, what that looks like. And then other parts of it would be just well, it's fine the way it is. There's no reason to change or even create a separate hybrid population. There's really no reason, like Chickasaw plum. You know, they're all fruitful. Maybe I made a selection based on hardiness because I have zone five there where I have those planted in the Chickasaws, but they're always fruitful. I always have a crop. So I don't, don't necessarily see a hybrid there necessary, but there might be some that I have that I pulled out from that group that did hybridize. And I'll plant those and I'll go, okay, that created this situation, but it's not much different than the Chickasaw plum. So anyway, you can go in different directions with populations, separate them if you want, and then grow them and then check that what that looks like. Then you take the seeds from that and replicate it again. So you have to do that several times, whether it's an oak tree or a plum tree, you have to do that. Again, going back to the persimmons, there's really nothing more I can do with that. But if I had room, <laughs> I probably would repeat that process with the American persimmon, but use the most earliest trees because that still is a critical aspect of it. And then from that population of American persimmon, you can probably, the thing would be to even graph now some of the most early ripening ones but also the ones that have less seeds. That might be from the standpoint of cultivating it as a commercial crop, that might be of value. But here again, when you go back to this commercial thing, once I, well, as soon as you dive into that, then you're going, what am I creating? Because you, if it's a commercial crop, is it gonna be another herbicide strip and grass in the middle? Because now you have another crop. Now you've created, certainly you've created value, but if the farmer is still doing the same toxic 
control measures, it's it's bad for the farmer, it's bad for the environment. I think introducing the plant nowadays is not a bad idea and it can help individuals with small gardens and so forth, but introducing it on a commercial scale, I think you need to educate people with the crop and how to care for it and how they don't have to do those things because it's so ingrained into the fruit, the orcharding culture that it's hard to get rid of. <laughs> One of the things that Oikos has been really important for, for people in my networks, it's had the most accessible source of uh, Jerusalem artichoke variety yeah. and right. round nuts. And so I was wondering right. if aside from, you know, the trees, if you could just talk a little bit about these other crops that have different logics that might not be commercial, but where people, especially thinking about resilience, thinking about climate change, maybe thinking about perennial vegetable crops that you know right. might be underutilized and what it means to kind of save and develop those. Again, you know, when you talk about this, whether it's just someone that's working in their own gardens at home or or someone that wants to improve a crop, you're you're on your own. <laughs> there there's very few resources to help you. And there there are repositories. Some individuals are more giving with their knowledge. Others are, it's a black hole, you know? And for me, I've given them away. I've sold them. I'll do anything. I'll exchange. Since I've closed my farm, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, various people in public gardens. And I'm like, well, you need to get these established. You know, this would be, oh, we've always wanted to do that. So a lot of my Jerusalem artichokes varieties, the ones that I've developed at my farm, and same with the groundnut, I just give it away. I'm hoping that people will take up the cause of it. And it'll be, if it's in a more of a public setting, then I'm hoping that, you know, someone with a degree in culinary arts or something will yank those out of the ground and try different things with them. So the idea of developing a perennial root crop, just in general, the idea is always being able to access that over time and not losing it. The groundnut itself is high protein. We're really focusing on plant proteins and we've really missed, completely missed the boat. All this money is going to our pea protein, our fungal protein. Um, my thought is why not, you know, why can't we just develop these crops a little bit more? Maybe some equipment is needed if it's done commercially, but even in the home garden, these crops are easy to use, so easy. You know, sunchokes, Maybe a little more difficult because of the digestibility issues, um, but people generally like sunchokes too. And the ones that I developed at my farm, the ones that I focused on were just the ones that were smaller and easier to clean. So I picked plants that, in one particular case, this one variety called Star White Cluster. The reason I like that particular one is that the artichokes were smaller and they're all smooth. And there's another couple other ones that I have, one called Drago, which is almost perfectly round. I really like those. Um, I had other ones that I grew or had, uh, like Top Star. Those were nice, too. They were huge. Uh, but again, very productive. Um, that wasn't my variety, but there's uh, Dwarf Sunray is another one where it's um, quite an amazing yield. Uh, so all those are, again, those... Sunchokes have been around since the 1700s or so, 
worldwide, and there's cultures have used sunchokes. You can see the names of each of the cultures that use uh, food plants of the world has all the names of sunchokes that in every culture, what, what those names are, what they call it. And it's really fascinating. Uh, the thing would be with, with the sunchokes is people cultivate it maybe in a pot or try to protect it from spreading too much. But some cultivars don't spread too much and others are more uh, rhizome based and spread a lot. There's a lot of possibilities with sunchokes. And then over the years, people have explored it, but not too much has been done yet with commercializing the crop to any degree. But it's, it's there. It's always been there, the sunchoke. You can't get rid of it, <laughs> as, any, as most gardeners know. But the, the groundnut is the one that, is, to me, has the most potential ever. And the ones that I selected were for shorter season uh, types versus the Louisiana State University Dr. Block, Dr. Blockmom selections. His is more of a southern form, but bigger, very nice selections. So I was selling all those and growing them for quite a while until I uh, closed the nursery. But hopefully those will continue in some other gardens. I sent, I sent a lot of them out, I'll tell you. Wow. What is your advice to people who are thinking about both preserving and developing these populations and who are thinking, I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned, you know, thinking about having county reserves of perennial crops and populations. And so, you know, how can people keep track of or coordinate this kind of plant improvement? And, you know, what's your vision right now kind of going into this period of climate change for how people can use these and improve them? Well, that, that's a very good question because I, I started a dialogue with uh, a couple people here in Michigan, but I want to enlarge that. And basically, the idea of having these repositories accessible by anyone at any time, but at the same time, having it so it's continuous. You really need something that won't be sold off or destroyed, you know, at least for a century, I would think. So I don't, you know, going forward as far as like finding these places to do that, it might be a little tricky. So we're having some discussion of that. There's a guy that I'm working with who has established edible trails here in Michigan, and we're trying to figure out how we can get some of these crops into these, what would be considered a public plantings. The issue often becomes with plants and many people have opinions about plants. You know, it's like a movie. It's like, well, I like that. I don't, you know. And with the plants, it's kind of segmented into native and non-native for public lands. So many things would, not, would, be, would be excluded from that. And then other public gardens that could be done by nonprofits or things, we've thought about that and we're trying to figure out a place where we can set that up. But we're kind of taking cues from, I'm taking cues from the calls that I'm getting in, the people I'm talking to that have these fruit orchards out east and out west where they are allowing people to collect and use the fruits in these commercial parks and so forth. And so I think to me, that's really where the germplasm needs to go. It needs to go into these public areas 
where you're going to have to teach people how to use it as well. Just like acorns, you have to teach them and show them. It's not, you know, some of the things on YouTube and wow, it's wrong. But, you know, what do you do? You, you fight, you fight ignorance with knowledge, I guess. So just for clarification, so are these sort of community orchards or are these town commons? The one that I'm thinking of is the one in Philadelphia. But yeah, they tend to be plantings of some type of fruit or nut crop that they feel will grow well in that area. They're more like almost like a park that's being maintained as a park. And then they're taking a portion of that, of the grass, and turning it into these plantings. But to not just plant the trees, but to take care of them, mark them, and get people involved with coming back for two or three years. You really need that follow through. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't work. So, one of the things I'm working on now is kind of consolidating my collections. And from that, I'm trying to make it available in some manner or form. But one of the things that I'm very excited about right now is the perennial beans. And the reason I'm excited about that, again, is I'm thinking about a protein crop, but also about, you know, what does it look like if you have something that grows 50 feet tall, is a huge vine, and then it sheds lots of protein-rich seeds. And I'm very excited about the thicket bean. And the reason I'm probably more stoked on that is I treated it, <laughs> I treated it like a tree crop. And most people wouldn't do that to a bean plant. But what I found was after five or six years, the yields were just amazing, hot, so high and so, so amazing. And the flavor is fantastic. And I've given the, the seeds out to people in culinary arts. And go, Can you make something out of this? And uh, they have. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to work on is the culinary aspect of these crops. It's one thing to grow them. And then another thing to process them. So I gave my pawpaws, for instance, to, to someone that works on chocolate. I go, can you do something with this related to chocolate? Or can you do something with this making something else out of it? To me, that's like a whole new frontier right there alone. So, you know, that's one of the things I would just say is the culinary aspect of this. You know, it's growing it is one thing because I've always focused on that. But the culinary aspect, oh, my gosh. It's like a whole universe of possibilities there. It's amazing. Yeah, it's not just horticulture. It's plant and culture and culture, culture, culture. <laughs> Thank you to Ken for sharing his knowledge with us. We'll have more information cited in this episode, such as Sarah Mawson's oak and acorn research on our website, partisangardens.org. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.